Well, thanks, Andrew, and good morning um, to y'all. My name is, is Tim, and I have the pleasure of, of serving as one of the pastors here on staff. Um, we're so glad to have you with us as we continue um, our, our look in the Gospel of Matthew, and, uh, and in Matthew sort of 11, but also all of chapter 9 um, today. And so as we jump into that story, um, why don't I pray for us, ask for God's help, and then we'll, uh, we'll hear what uh, the Lord has to say. Our Father, would you open our eyes to the power of your word? That the words we would speak and the thoughts we would think would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. What's one thing that any good relationship must have? Right? What must exist for a relationship to be healthy? Trust. Right? At the moment... A trust begins to break down in a relationship. The relationship inevitably breaks down with it. For example, when I, when I was in college, um, the first computer I bought going off to college was a PC. It was a, a Hewlett Packard. Um, and for the first few months, it was fine. But after a few months, every time I turned it on, it had a new virus. And it was working slower and slower. And so as the months progressed, my, my trust of PC computers was slowly eroded to the point where the next computer that I bought, even though they were more expensive, I got a Mac. And that was 14 years ago, and Macs have never let me down. My trust has not been eroded, so I still use only Apple products. But that was a, a transition with a computer, which wasn't very, very costly. But what happens when trust breaks down in a relationship that packs power? Right? What happens when trust in a marriage breaks? Or trust in a parent, trust in a close friend. The reality is, if you can't trust someone else, once the trust begins to break down, so the relationship breaks with it. And that's one reason why it can be profoundly difficult to be a Christian, to trust God. That's why some of you right now, you're not in a place of faith, you're not a Christian, because you look at your own life and you see all kinds of compelling reasons not to trust God. Whether it's, it's that he hasn't made himself evident to you, whether it's, it's there are things in the Bible you just look at and think, there's no way I could build my life on that. But you have completely understandable reasons for why you can't lean your entire life onto God. But, but just so you know, that's not just a problem for those outside the faith who, look, who might look at the Bible, look at God and say, I can't trust. But it's also, I think it's a bigger problem for those of us inside the faith. Because if you follow Jesus long enough, there's going to be a moment in your life when you're going, to, you're going to wonder if you can trust God. And that's the story we just read of, of John the Baptist, who has sent his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus essentially one question, can I trust you? And hearing John ask that question, we have to remember who John the Baptist is. Like, this isn't just some weak-minded person. In Luke 7, 28, John, Jesus actually says of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So basically, Jesus says, John is the greatest human being who ever lived. And he got to a place in his relationship with God, his relationship with Jesus, where he says, can I trust you? Because here in John 11, John is, he's in prison. And the reason that he was put into prison is because he was a prophet and he saw a local ruler by the name of Herod Antipas go and steal his brother's wife. Commits adultery, takes his brother's wife, his brother's wife away from him. And John the Baptist spoke up and said, you, you can't do that. You can't take your brother's wife. And so Herod Antipas grabbed John the Baptist and imprisoned him. And it's from this place, John sends his disciples to Jesus, and essentially he's asking Jesus, 
Are you, who, are you who you said you were? Will you do what you said you were going to do? Jesus, I'm, I'm in prison. Do you care about me where I'm at? Can I trust you? Those are the questions at the heart of any relationship, right? Of a marriage, of a good friendship, of, of a close um, friend or, or family, right? Are you who you say you are? Will you do what you say that you will do? And, and do you care about me personally? And, and I would say, as, as Christians, you have to answer all those three questions about Jesus. If you're going to lean your whole life on him, if you're going to have faith in him, you have to answer those three questions. And that's really at the heart of what the question John is asking Jesus here. And so those three qu- questions to me are great. Great three questions to build a sermon around. That is, is Jesus who he said he was? Will he do what he said he would do? And does he care about you personally? And so let's, let's jump in. Sort of looking at Matthew 11, this, qu- this question John asks of Jesus, but really we're, we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 9 because Matthew's writing a, a book, right? It's not just a bunch of random things he's putting together. And all through Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew is telling you stories to prepare you for this question John's going to ask him. John is going to come to this question and say, Jesus, are you who you said you were? And Matthew writes chapters 8 and 9 so that you're ready for Jesus' answer to, the, to John the Baptist in that moment. And so it's worth reading Jesus' response to John again. John comes to Jesus, or John sends his disciples to Jesus. John is in prison, and John asks Jesus, can I trust you? Are you who you said you were? And Jesus responds by saying this. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended or who does not fall away on account of me. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you remember Matthew 8, a leper was cleansed. That on Easter Sunday, we talked about the paralytic who rose and walked. The, the lame can now walk. John, or Matthew's been building Jesus' resume all through Matthew 8 and 9 to prepare us for this question in Matthew 11. And so the question then is, is, is Jesus who he claimed to be? The question is, well, who is he claiming to be? Who did Jesus claim to be, especially in this response to the gospel or to, to John the Baptist when he says, John, the, the blind can now see. The lame can now walk. The lepers are, are cleansed. What is Jesus claiming to be? Well, that, that answer that Jesus gives to John, it's, he's alluding to Isaiah 61. And John the Baptist would have known that. John would have known his Old Testament really well. So the moment Jesus starts speaking, John goes to Isaiah 61 in his mind. And this passage in Isaiah 61 talks about a kingly figure who's going to come and do these sorts of things, where lame people are going to start walking, where the, the poor are going to have good news preached to them. And so Jesus is saying, I am that person from Isaiah 61. I am that king. The, the, the title in the Hebrew Bible was Messiah. I am, I am the Messiah, John, that king. And it's a claim that, that's clear all through Matthew 8 and 9. In particular, at, at one moment, Matthew 9, verses 32 through 34, there's an account of Jesus healing a man who can't speak. But unlike most of Jesus' physical healings, there isn't just a, a physical healing, but actually Jesus casts a demon out of the man, and that is why the man couldn't speak. And once the demon is gone, then the man begins to speak again, that the man was not just affected by a physical ailment, but there was a spiritual reality underneath his physical ailment. And I'm not suggesting that that's the case with every physical ailment. The demons explain everything. And yet I would say that you cannot explain the entirety of this world without understanding a supernatural evil that's underneath much of what we see and experience. 
And it's that reality which should explain to you why life on this planet is so difficult much of the time. And I realize to many of you that may sound silly or naive that there's demonic um, or supernatural evil of some kind. But, but I would say, listen, if you try to do anything truly good in this world, you try to fight injustice, fight racism, fight poverty, if you try to fight anything that is, is evil in this world, you try to do some good, you're going to find it's not just that people seem to oppose you, but, but forces, things you can't see, things that have more power than just the person that you're sitting across from. And two quick examples of that. I mean, it took an entire world to gather together to fight against Germany to put down the idea that Jews should not be killed just because they're Jews. I mean, it took an entire world to stop that. Or in our own cultural context, we think about Jim Crow laws or lynchings that happened and how much blood, sweat, and tears it had to go in for us as a society to say those things are evil and wrong. Try to do anything good, whether it's, it's grand things like injustice, poverty, racism, or even just little things like addiction in your own life or bad habits. You try to fight those things and you find that it's, it's not just people who oppose you, but, but forces, systems, things you can't see. And it's not just that, they, that there seems to be people or, or systems who oppress you, but also it's not just that they oppress you. There also seems to be a mocking that comes back at you. The theologian Robert Jensen, who's, who's hardly a conservative theological uh, or conservative theologically, um, taught a class at Harvard, and he said this about the presence of the demonic or supernatural evil. He, here's what he wrote in, in, or said in this class at Harvard. The existence of a tempter is an ongoing conviction, not just of Christianity, but also of Judaism. And this reflects more than anything else a common experience. There does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was very skeptical about the existence of Satan until I made that observation. The disasters that happened could just be disasters, but we seemed to be mocked by them. Try to do anything good in this world, and you will not just feel like you're opposed, but you're mocked. Right? No matter what you do to try to put your life back together, you, you, you make great progress and then it all falls apart and it doesn't just seem you're oppressed, but you're mocked. And what Jesus is claiming there, when he, he goes to that man who can't speak and he heals him and casts out demons, a part of central to Jesus' claim is that he's not just this individual miracle worker, but he is a king with a kingdom who is ushering in a kingdom that is gonna overcome all of that, those systems and those forces and that mocking and that oppression that you and I face. Jesus claims to be a king that's coming in to overcome all of that. He's the Messiah who's not just uh, someone with a message, but he's a king with a kingdom. And so do you, who do you say that, that Jesus is? It's a question we're gonna keep coming back to again and again as, as we look through the gospel of Matthew. Who do you think that Jesus is? is because you can't have a middle ground where Jesus just seems to be like a nice guy and, and I mean this both for Christians who sort of give some of our lives over to him or, or those who maybe think Jesus seems like a nice guy the church is as a, a harmless force and and and, and it should be respected listen Jesus made outrageous claims and here with Johnny saying I'm a king with the kingdom I am the Messiah I'm going to overcome everything evil in this world you have to take that claim seriously Think of it like this. Let's say we get to the end of the service this morning, doing the benediction, and I, as we're closing out, just say, listen, guys, you've known me for a year and a half or so. I just wanted you to know, I have not said this yet, but I'm going to let you know now. I'm, I'm actually a king sent from heaven. And I'm, up, I'm ushering in a kingdom that's going to overcome all of the evil and, and the bad things that exist in your world. So take heart because I'm, I'm king. 
Now at that point, um, you, I've radically changed the reality of your church attendance here, right? Like you can't go to your friend later this week and be like, dude, we gotta, it's a great church, you really love the people. Um, one thing, our pastor thinks he's a king sent from heaven, but everything else is great, right? You, you couldn't do that, right? You'd have, to, you'd, have to take my, you'd have to take that claim. You'd have to, to encounter it. You'd have to think through it. Maybe you'd look at me and say, well, that, that is a beard fit for a king, maybe. But the reality, right, you dismissed me. And, and most of you would probably rightfully leave the church. I'd hope you'd leave the church if I claimed to be a king, right? And yet here's Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I have a kingdom. If you can't walk, one day you will. If you're blind, one day you'll see. If, you're, if you can't speak, one day you will. If you're dead, one day you'll... Like you, what he's claiming here, you have to take seriously. And so those of you who are Christians, do you believe Jesus is who he said he was, who he claimed to be? That's what he's saying to John the Baptist here. He's not saying to John, look, look at all the people who are following me. Look how great my teachings are. No, what Jesus says to John to prove who he was was to say, John, the, the lame now walk. The blind can now see. Those who can't speak now can. Jesus isn't claiming to give you teachings or a good path to live your life on. He's claiming to be king and Messiah, and you have to take that seriously. Do you trust who he, that he was who he said he was, that he was who he claimed to be? Do you trust Jesus? So that's the first question we have to answer. The second is, will, will he do what he said he would do? All right, Jesus is claiming to be a king with a kingdom. So what is it that he said he would do? What, what is it that he is claiming he's going to do for those who follow him? And, and, and again, remember, John's in prison um, in this moment. That's an important reality. And so when, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 at John, John or Jesus' quote, quotation of Isaiah 61, it leaves something out. If you were to read Isaiah 61, you'd find... Isaiah 61 says the Messiah is going to, it's, it's, he's going to preach good news to the poor, that the, the lame are going to walk, and that those who are in prison will be released. But Jesus doesn't say that to John. He leaves it out, and there's no doubt John would have caught that. The Jesus list of Mezi, uh, for his resume as Messiah doesn't include the one thing John needs it to include. And yet Jesus adds a phrase that's not in Isaiah 61. He says, the dead are now raised. Which brings us to, to the story at, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, that all through Matthew 8 and 9, there's sort of this, this, this move towards a climax of Jesus' miracles getting more and more impressive. And at the beginning of chapter 9, there's a man, a synagogue leader who comes to Jesus. And he kneels before Jesus, which has been an, been an act of, of humility. For him to kneel before Jesus, a man with no formal seminary education, no Bible training, yet this local synagogue ruler comes and, and kneels before Jesus and pleads with Jesus and tells Jesus, my daughter has just died. And so Jesus gets up. He goes to the house of the man and his family. And when he gets there, there's already a funeral happening. And in that day, when you had a funeral, you would hire mourners, people who would mourn, um, and, and flute players. And so you get to the, they get to the house, and it's loud, right? There's, there's mourning, there's, there's flute playing going on. It's loud, it's noisy. And Jesus speaks up loud enough for everyone in the whole house to hear. And he says, go away, for the girl's not dead, she's sleeping. The mourners and the flute players break character and laugh at Jesus. Thinking he can't be serious, right? The girl's dead. We know when, we know when people are dead. And yet Jesus has kind of that, 
maybe crazy person look. I'm like, no, I'm serious. This is, she's really just sleeping. And, and so they, they stop laughing and, and they leave. They leave the house. And Jesus goes up to, to the room where the girl was dead on, on a bed. And he goes up to her and, and Matthew tells us he, he touches her by the hand. And another gospel um, story says what Jesus actually told the girl, what he said, which the, the translation from the Greek, the best translation we have is, is what he says to the little girl is, little one, it's time to get up. And he reaches down into death and pulls her out like her death was a nap. Then when Jesus said in, in the, the house for all to hear, she's just sleeping. She was really dead, but what he's saying is, is if around me, death is like sleep. It's like a nap. There is no death near me. And so you can imagine what John the Baptist would have thought when he heard of that story. Jesus raised this little girl to life from death. What's he going to do for me? And now John has his answer. That Jesus will raise this little girl to life, but John will not be removed from prison. Jesus leaves that part of Isaiah 61 out. And listen, it's, it's why it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to trust God. Because you read the Bible, you, hear, you see Jesus doing amazing things, right? doing miraculous things, and you think, what, what's he going to do for me? And sometimes what he does for you is not much. It's silence. You see him do great things for others. You see him move evident in the lives of others, and you wait for it in your own life, but it doesn't come. And the reason that's the case is because Jesus' primary promise to you is not to make your life better, not to, to smooth out all the rough edges, not to do everything that you hope or long for him to do. Jesus' primary promise to you is that when you die, it will be more like a sleep or a nap than a death. That's his promise. And so there might be lots of things he does not move on in your life. Like John, he may leave you languishing in prison, but that is not the promise he made to you. What he said he will do for you is call you out of your grave into life. So do you trust Jesus? Even when he gives you a disappointing answer, even when he doesn't move in your life the way that you want him to, do you see what he offers you? Do you trust him to come and raise you to life? So those are the first two questions. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? He claims to be the Messiah. Will he do what he said he's going to do, which is the tough one, because it's not necessarily this moment in your life. It's more we look to the grave. But thirdly, and this is the most important question, is does he care about you? Like, does he care for me personally? And the reality is there's lots of relationships I can enter into where this question doesn't matter. For example, I know I've talked about my fear of flying. When I get on a plane, I care that the pilot is who he claims to be, that he's really a pilot. Like, there's not someone sneaking in, like, catch me if you can in the movie. And I know that that's an old reference, but, but someone's not faking as the pilot, right? And I care that he is going to do what he said he would do, right? Wherever we're flying to, I want to actually fly there. Like, I don't want him to fly me to Kentucky or somewhere else terrible like that. Like, I want him to fly me where I'm supposed to go. But I don't care what he thinks of me, right? He could hate me. He could look at me, tell me to shave my beard. I don't care what he would tell me to do. I, it doesn't matter, but he needs to be who he claims to be, and he needs to do what he said he would do. And, and frankly, that's how most religions work. Right? So Muhammad says, I have really great teachings, do them. Or the Buddha says, I found the path to enlightenment. You need to, to practice it. And how Muhammad or the Buddha feel about you personally, it's irrelevant. All that matters is you do what they tell you to do. And that's where, that's where following Jesus, it's so, it's so much more difficult and it's so much different. Because you're saved, the Bible says, by faith and not by works. And faith is, is, is trust. And trust, it's leaning your whole weight 
on someone. It's, it's sitting into a chair, trusting the chair is not going to collapse and fall underneath you. And the only way you can enter into the Christian life is if you're convinced you can sit and lean your whole weight on Jesus and that it won't come crashing down on you, which means you have to be convinced that he cares for you personally, that he's not indifferent to you. Because he's not just saying, here are my teachings, do them. He's saying, here I am, follow me. Here's my life, here's my kingdom, join my kingdom, my life. And like John the Baptist in this moment, Matthew 11, there are going to be moments in your life where you wonder if you can sit on the chair because you're in prison, you're languishing. He's not moving in your life the way that you want him to. And you'll wonder, should I? Can I trust him? And it's why Jesus' last sentence to John the Baptist, his last words to John on this, on this earth are, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. As if Jesus says to John and to you and to me, following me is going to be really difficult. It's going to be really easy to fall away, to give up, but don't. John, I'm everything I said I was. I'll do everything I said I would do. Don't give up on me, John. So it raises a question, okay, how, why? Why should we not give up on Jesus, especially in those moments when we're languishing, we're in prison? How can we know that we can lean our whole weight on him and our lives will not come crashing down Underneath us, and in light of, of all of Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew 11, let me give you three reasons why you and I, we should lean our whole way on him, why we can know that he doesn't just, um, he's not just who he said he was, or he'll not just do what he said he would do, but we can trust him because he cares for us personally. Three things. The, the first, he came for you and me when we had nothing. That it could be really easy to read the, the, the miracle stories in Matthew 8 and 9 and assume you need some sort of faith for Jesus to come to you. Right? You've got to make some demonstration of faith, and if you make enough demonstration of faith, then God will respond to you. But that's, you can't use that with a little girl. She's dead. She has nothing to offer Jesus, and yet Jesus goes to her anyway. And so the Bible describes our condition apart from God in Ephesians 2 is death. If you don't have life with God, it's not that you're weaker. It's not that you, you have some problems you need to iron out to make your life better before God. No, you're You're dead. Which means that Jesus came for you when you didn't have anything to offer him. You don't need doubt why he's come to you, why Jesus entered into this earth. It's not because he's trying to get something from you. It's not because he's going to abandon you. You were dead anyway. He had no reason to come in the first place, yet he came for you and me. And when you see that, when you see that God came for you, came for me when there was literally nothing in it for him, then you'll know, how could he ever abandon you? But even when you're languishing in prison, even when he's not moving in your life the way that you want him to, you need never doubt that he will come. He will come. He came for you when you were dead, which means of course he'll come for you when you're in prison. So do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? A second, then, his mission reveals his personal care for every person. At the end of Matthew 9, you get all, all of these miraculous stories that are or Jesus healing, but you get this last moment that sort of sums it all up in, in verses 36 and 38 uh, through 38 in, in chapter 9. I want to read those. This is Jesus goes, he heals people, he's healed um, those who can't walk, those who can't see, those who can't hear. He's done all of these healings, and he gets to this moment and he says this in verses 36 uh, through 38 in chapter 9. When, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But do you hear Jesus' concern for every, every person? The word that Matthew uses there is that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. It's a, it's a rare word in the, the New Testament. Um, it's the word used of the story in Luke 15, the, the father whose son ran away from him. And when the, the, the father sees the son coming back to him, we're told the father had compassion and he took off as an old man and, and completely undignified himself and ran, ran after his son and embraced him, weeping and, and kissing his lost son who's come home. That's the sort of compassion the image were to have in our mind. And in the Gospel of Matthew, that word compassion is only used of Jesus. No one else has compassion like Jesus has for you. There's no one with more mercy, more compassion, more love for you in your life. And listen, either that means if Jesus is not who he said he was, he's a really deranged person, right? Looking with compassion on all these people, feeling sorry for them if he can't do anything for them, or if he is who he said he was, then he cares for you in a way that no one else does. He has a compassion for you that no one else does. That's one way you can tell, listen, he cares for you personally. But another is in what Jesus is commanding his disciples there, right? He prays. He asks the disciples to pray that more laborers be sent out into the harvest so that there could be more people telling in this world of God's mercy and grace. All right, I love this moment because Jesus is not so subtly telling the disciples their future. All right, like he's saying, uh, oh, if there were only a group of, of people committed to going out into all the world to share my good news, you guys should pray for people like that. Right, there's this irony. Jesus is saying, this is going to be you. Which means two things, right? One, we as a church should be praying for that, that we would be sent out into the harvest, that God would raise up more people sent out into this world to tell people of God's mercy and compassion. But also that means it's central to you and I, our calling as a church. We are called out into the world to share of God's mercy, his compassion. And so as you go out into your workplace this week, as you go out into whatever your primary vocation is this week, don't just do your work well, but also see yourself as a mission, on a mission sent from Jesus, because central to his mission is to tell the world God has mercy and compassion for every last one of us. So you can be, listen, Jesus cares for you in a way no one else has, because he came for you when you had nothing for him. And, and, and two, it's central to his mission, is his compassion on this world. And thirdly, you cost him more than he will ever cost you. Right, Jesus, listen, he, he cost John the Baptist everything. John the Baptist is going to die in prison. He will not get out. And yet, John cost Jesus far more than Jesus cost John. And I want to be real about that. Following Jesus is going to cost you everything. Jesus is not interested in a portion of your life, right? You don't pay taxes to Jesus and then he leaves you alone with the rest of the 90% of your life or whatever it is. He wants all of it, which means following Jesus is, is costly. It should cost you Everything, but even if in the case of, as in the case of John the Baptist, following Jesus costs you your life. Following Jesus will never cost you as much as it costs Jesus for you to come to him. And do you know why? This word fall away in John 11, or Matthew 11, when Jesus says to John, blessed are all who do not fall away on account of me. That, that same word shows up in another prominent place in the gospel of Matthew. At the very end of the gospel, when Jesus and his disciples, they it was the night Jesus was arrested. They were singing together, praying together in, in one of Jesus' favorite places, the Mount of Olives. 
And in that moment, Jesus looked at his disciples and said to them, you're all going to fall away because of me tonight. And if you remember, Peter has a response, not me. I will never fall away. And Jesus responds to Peter, no, you will. And actually three times before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me. And in the next few verses, you get, a, you get a glimpse of how far the disciples fell away, far, far away from, from Jesus. That Jesus asked them to pray for him. Right? He goes and he sweats blood and tears. He's having an excruciating night. So he asks his, his disciples to pray for him. They fall asleep. So he comes to them and he, and he says, wake up. <laughs> pray again. And he goes back. He prays. They fall asleep again. And then when Jesus is arrested, they do all fall away. But the one person Matthew tells us that, that stayed behind Jesus, he's the one who denied Jesus three times, Peter, even before a, 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 a servant girl. That at the end of the gospel, all the disciples fall away. The one thing Jesus told John, don't fall away because of me, all the disciples fall away. And yet, right, that, that, look deep into our lives, and that's what we all do to him, isn't it? That we don't trust him with our money, we don't trust him with our time, we don't trust him with our sexuality, with our vocation oftentimes. There are so many things we don't hand over to him to trust. We all fall away. That when the moment comes to lean our weight on the chair and sit down, we, we don't. And yet in this moment, the moment when we just see Jesus' closest disciples falling away, we see Jesus at his greatest. That at the moment they're following, falling away from Jesus, what's, what's Jesus doing? He's being everything that he said he was. He's doing everything that he claimed he would do. He's ushering in his kingdom. He's showing his personal care. He's going to a cross and dying for the very people who are falling away from him. Right? Taking the penalty for our inability to trust. The fact that we, you and I, continually fall away from him. Our inability to trust him. At the very moment we can't trust him, he goes to his cross to get us back, to do as, as the book of Colossians says, to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness, this kingdom which weighs on us and oppresses us and mocks us. He transfers us out of that kingdom and into his. That on that moment that we fall away from him, he's everything he said he would be to us. That he, we cost him far more than he will ever cost us. So do you trust him? That he is everything he said he would be. He was that for you on the cross. That he is everything. He will do everything he said that he will do. He went into a tomb. He came out as a down payment on a promise to you that he'll do the same for you. And he cares for you personally. He doesn't just shout his teachings at you from on high, but he calls you to himself from a cross. Do you trust him? Let's pray.